0: Welcome to Talking Up, an interview show dedicated to writers and authors working on issues of social justice, equity, and the systems that make up the charity sector. Guests are talking about their reporting and research, and listeners will have the opportunity to hear writers talk about their work and understand what's driving it and get to know them a bit more personally. Welcome to Talking Up with host Gail Pickup, editor in chief of the Charity Report.
1: Sid Brunet is a former stripper and emerging writer who spent a decade working in strip clubs across Canada under the name Michelle. Her first book, This Is My Real Name, A Stripper's Memoir, is a candid, searing account of 10 years in the sex trade, a personal guide of the strip club circuit by someone who knows it well. Brunet's crisp dialogue puts you into the dressing room, the VIP lounge, on the pole, or in the middle of a mental collapse. It is a subcultural microcosm of civilization, at once a gladiator's pit, a hypnotic and intimate sexual emporium, the set of the movie Norma Ray, or an episode of Cheers. She talks to us today from her home in Montreal. So welcome to Talking Up, Sid. Thank you. Congratulations on this is uh, my real name. The Charity Report uh, review panel loved the book. It uh, It's number three on the list of uh, the best books for 2021. So that, congrats on that. Thank you. Yeah. So what's the response been like to the book so far?
2: Um, it's been overwhelmingly really positive, I think people are very interested in the subject matter and also seem to be responding well to the characters. So overall, it's been really great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a subject matter. Most people don't really have any firsthand knowledge of. It's kind of like a a scene, a workplace that operates out of the view of of most people. Um, And that makes it, particularly interesting, but it also has a, a lot of dynamics that that go with it. Um, you got into the business when you were in your 20s because you needed to make some decent um, money. And what was your view of the trade, like, when you got in it uh, compared to 10 years later when, when you left? That's a long time, I know. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, oh. Um, Yeah, I think
2: um, I'll talk about um, the character Michelle. So I'll just talk about her instead of using I pronouns, but it is a memoir. But um, yeah, when Michelle got into the work, she was 22, I think. And she was coming at it from a very like political, um, arguably feminist angle of knowing that after she'd worked a bunch of really terrible low paid um, nine to five kind of jobs and not even nine to five, like construction, like restaurants, um, pretty difficult physical work. Yeah. Uh, She reached a point of wanting to make more money for her time and doing like a cost benefit analysis, decided that um, particularly stripping would be a way that she could do that. And she really kind of, because I think you're right. It is strip clubs are a very subcultural Um, world that people that the general population doesn't have a lot of information about or access to so she showed up at that space with almost no information as to what that uh, was going to be like except for she'd done a lot of like reading and I think part of queer history often involves people doing sex work to survive and to provide for their communities so that was what she was kind of hoping to do. Um, and then also just have more of her own time back. But I
1: think it was very much walking into a situation kind of blind. And then as you get into the trade, it's like getting to into uh, you know, a very complex organism of work. As you say, it's a subculture. There are... P- people in there with different roles they play different parts there's the bouncer there's the stripper there's the customer there's the bad customer <laughs> and um you um you are very vivid in your writing i mean part of the joy of reading this book was there is an immediacy about it and a directness about it and it shines right from you know the the first chapter where you're in the pickup I think it's a pickup truck and you're counting the amount of money that you and your Mm. friend have have made after your first night and you're going wow yeah this is working out pretty well but uh so you come on this is a very accomplished writerly book so so um I think you've said you've always kind of been a writer has 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 that been a first love? Like when you were a teenager, did you write? Do you you recall thinking about having a writing career when you were uh, younger? Oh yeah, absolutely. It was the main,
2: it was the first thing that I wanted to do. I remember Uh, the very first thing that I wrote ever, which was like a story about a Kiwi bird, I think. And then I was able to publish a short story in high school, which was really nice. And kind of, it was, I wouldn't, ever reread that it was very much like a matrixy <laughs> kind of, right. kind of
1: that's environmental that, destruction. at that age it's that's the thing right it's like the, yeah the, the, sort of the alternative uh, f- uh uh fiction yeah yeah
2: but then it I think it wasn't until I went to um creative writing college in at Douglas College oh yeah um, yeah in oh. New Westminster
1: yeah
2: um and that was the first time that I was really introduced to creative nonfiction. um under Shashi Bahat she was amazing Um, but I hadn't really considered that as a genre before and I would always kind of run into the problem of trying to use fiction to create characters that I didn't kind of fully understand and it Mm -hmm. wasn't until really learning some of the craft around memoir that I was able to get into that state of writing things that felt kind of more immediate and more touching and more raw Mm -hmm. I couldn't really get there with fiction so I really appreciated that
1: and, and I mean, it, it it stays immediate over over the ten years of your telling. So, were you keeping a journal at the time? Like, uh, y- you must have been doing something of making notes because uh, it it really is, and and it is a memoir. Yeah, I'm a compulsive
2: journaler for sure, mm-hmm. and <laughs> a lot of um, when I think about the first drafts of this book or what led me to apply for. A mentorship program with the Quebec Writers Federation that helped me make it into more of like a novel. It initially was more of like poetry and just literally pieces of dialogue that I'd um, saved or scrolled away or put in my notes app in my phone when I was working. Um, so that really allowed me to base the text off of um, dialogue in a lot of ways. And the narrative came later. Um, but it was really created around the dialogue for sure.
1: Well, that, that's no surprise that to hear that then be, because the dialogue is, is just sparkles right throughout the whole, um, the whole memoir. When you get to the end of the book, you're pretty, you're, you're burned out pretty well. And um, I used to work in a, a shelter for abused women. That's that was my first real job as a, as a grown up job and i i worked there for 8 years and i burned out totally burned out at the end of it i just there, there's many symptoms of burnout and i recognized a couple of them in in your writing but also there um I mean, it's obvious probably to everybody that was looking at you as at the time everybody was looking at me going, just leave. Like, just go, for go, you know, for goodness sake. But there, there's also the camaraderie that you are, you're leaving behind. It's Michelle you're leaving. It's part of yourself that you're leaving there. It's what well, kept you... It, a roof over your head for 10 years and all of those people you are you it's like being in an army unit or something and and be the being the only one that has to go home because you're sick and everybody else gets to stay was there a feeling of the I mean the push and the pull of that um, because you're in or you're out there's there's really no half measures there hey
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good kind of summary of a lot of the factors that were at play. I think also because it's um, such a subcultural and insular world, um, I think you're very right. It wasn't like there was, you were either in or you're out and being out meant losing access to this persona that I'd created, that I'd lived with um, Michelle for so many years. And I think because um, that More intense stage of burnout was happening in my early 30s. It also coincided so much with um, just internalized um, stuff around aging and what it meant to be like a female person aging in the world and like aging out of a culture of beauty and um, acceptance in certain kinds of like stereotypical ways. Um, So that felt really hard. And I think there's a lot of overlaps with other kinds of really. I don't know if difficult is the right word, but um, sort of intense jobs where you can in some ways build an identity around those. And it feels like such a loss when you're not able to do that work anymore. And I also work in, um, I've worked in shelters, but right now I'm working in a safe injection site and also dealing with some burnout from that as well. And it's, it's a very difficult process. And I think the only other thing I would say with that is just that because sex work is such a stigmatized industry Um, people look at the symptoms of burnout as more of a giving truth or giving weight to the idea that it's like a morally corrupt career and that people that do that kind of work are like morally wrong. So there was also that, um, I was fighting against that too, when I was leaving the industry of being like, yes, it's complicated. Yes. There's a lot of like toxicity that exists there, but also burnout is a thing that exists in like almost every intense kind of career.
1: Uh, definitely especially where there's a kind of a well well we used it was kind of like a trench mentality right Mm -hmm. you know that that you are against the the world and I think that uh working in shelters or you know working in safe injection sites there is a lot of people who are against what you're doing so it does feel like a um an us or them kind of uh, context that you're working in because you're you're basically uh, figuratively getting shot at, you know, um a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and it's interesting in your book because you mentioned that you did you know you, that you didn't really you weren't really an activist while you were stripping, like while you were working in the club and you have you mentioned that you have a little regret about that. But um I would totally go easy on yourself. Like, you know. <laughs> Two jobs (laughs) at the one time is a lot, right? But, and also now that you're so, your willingness to be open about, the reality of that work inside a strip club um, without being all judgy about it is really valuable to the whole community. So, mm. you know, you're doing good here. So you stopped working. You basically needed to stop working and you did. And so when was it that you started getting into the, um, you know, the more advocacy side of it or, you know, being more public about what needed to change, about the working conditions for for people who are um, working in strip clubs?
2: Yeah, I mean, I still probably don't identify as doing a lot of activism around that, I guess. I think, like, the character Michelle is, she comes from, like, the political trajectory of, like, anarchism, and that has, like, a long uh, history with Um, advocating for sex workers rights and things like that. But I think often she's like looking to some of the major organizations that exist in Canada that deal with advocacy around um, sex workers. So mainly the the biggest one is Maggie's in Toronto. There's also Shea Stella here and there's a number in Vancouver as well. Um, But those organizations are run by and for sex workers and They really tend to be at the forefront of like knowing what the laws are and knowing kind of like the the mood of police enforcement um, at different times, how that like waxes and wanes. Mm -hmm. Um, And also advocating for like the more criminalized forms of sex work, which tend to be like migrant sex workers, trans sex workers and people that work on the street, because it's it's always important to remember that like stripping tends to be the most privileged form of sex work because it's indoors because you're working with a lot of other girls um, because a lot of the times you're not doing um, certain sex acts that are more criminalized at different times so
1: yeah so on the hierarchy of sex work working in a strip club where there's layers of protection there's a camaraderie there's uh, uh, a screening of the clientele uh, however loose you know <laughs> there 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 is a, some kind of screening happening um and compared to people working on their own uh um who are not necessarily working because it's it's it, 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 because they're having a choice of how much money they want to make, like that there's less choices available to them. I can, I can see that. But do you see yourself now as involved at the community level? I mean, you're working at a safe injection site. Um, Mm -hmm. What's that like? Like, where does that fit into your, um, uh view of of you know what you've seen in the strip clubs and and your own personal you know things that you've been through and now you're in a safe injection site like what what's that like right yeah there's now?
2: there's a lot of kind of like overlap and I think Obviously I'm not going to name the place that I work at and right. I don't speak for them at all. Of
1: course I, don't I do, and I don't know the name of the place yeah, either. Yeah. So it yeah. <laughs> can be this completely fictitious. Uh,
2: yeah exactly. Yeah. Um part of the mandate of where I work is specifically trying to help um, trans folks and drug users and sex workers. So I feel like there's um stuff that I carry through in terms of like my experience having done a number of different kinds of sex work, mainly stripping and being a drug user myself, uh, into the work that I do now, it's hard. And since the pandemic, it's been like a really especially hard time for everybody that's using those services and also um, experiencing homelessness. Like I wouldn't say all of the folks that use the service are experiencing homeless, but a lot of them are. So there's really like a lot... um, Socially, that's happening in those spaces. Uh And I think it's really important that they continue to be staffed by people that have lived experience as drug users and sex workers and trans people so that we can try to stay away from the more
1: heavily institutionalized models where it's like a top down caregiving yeah you know in another show we could do a whole critique of the institutionalized oh, yeah. <laughs> social work practices that have reinforced you know negative stereotypes around women's work and so on but we'll save it for another time <laughs> um uh, because at the end of when you were stripping you um, you were you were taking uh, painkiller's opioids to, to to get through, uh, the night, I mean, you were in physical pain, you know, they ran a bunch of tests and couldn't find the exact cause. And you just flipped that off as being okay that it's psychosomatic, <laughs> but, but you, you, you were in physical pain. And and so you were taking opioids um, to deal with that pain at the end of, of your career there. Yeah. I think there's a lot, a lot going on there, honestly. Um,
2: the pain stuff almost didn't make it into the book, I think, because it was, is something that's very ongoing and, um, anyway, and it's, I wouldn't say that Michelle was just taking the opiates because of the pain. It had very much been integrated into her work routine, like much before, um, physical pain started. Uh So she started using opiates, um, more, more for the high, not for the painkilling necessarily, but, um, for that, it made it easier for her to have energy to interact with the clients to be funny and fun and to like enjoy, um, right. her time, uh, especially cause the, the Michelle character, how much does this book go into it? She's not like, she doesn't very much enjoy drinking. So. Uh, right.
1: Right. That's right. Whereas
2: that comes drinking across, is like yeah. a very socially accepted, um, yeah. thing to do at a bar, but she's very much having to like balance those two things and finding the tension. And then, yeah, when we do get into the later stages of burnout, um physical pain does start to be an issue uh-huh. with work. And then it's like the opiates that she's used to taking aren't really doing the like amount of work or painkilling and like fun they used to. They
1: just have become this like habitual right. necessity yeah. in a way. And then um, the BC Corner just came out a few days ago and said that there um oh, I saw that, I think. Did yeah. you see that? that? Yeah, sorry, go ahead, but yeah. Yeah, 2224 people died of uh, suspected illicit drug overdoses in 2021 in BC, which was a 26% increase over 2020. And most of that was opioid related, a lot of fentanyl in there. So you're working in a safe injection site. What? Give me your take on on what you think is happening with the opioid crisis right now, like as a frontline oh worker.
2: Yeah, that that statistic was like really kind of heartbreaking, and yeah. also, it's just good to state that it was like much more than the people who died of COVID. Um, so just to compare those numbers is really kind of heartbreaking. I think a lot happened. I mean the the overdose crisis in Vancouver has been happening for a longer period of time, and there's more resources and more services that exist there than the rest of the country. And I think what we saw during the pandemic was the presence of fentanyl moving east. One thing I've been hearing folks talk about lately is changing the way that we talk about um, overdose and moving more towards saying drug poisoning, death from drug poisoning, because so many of those people that died during that period of time um, were not trying to overdose. They were trying to use either the same amount of drugs or perhaps they were like relapsing and um, picked up a substance that they thought they could trust. It transcends this, uh, this idea that society has that maybe the majority of the people who are like dying from this are somehow like homeless and therefore like deserve it in this horrible way that people think about people that use drugs who are street involved. But fentanyl has really been Moving freely through socioeconomic classes, and it's mm-hmm. killing a lot of people at a lot of different levels because it's so unexpected and it's so powerful. And the thing is, it's not just one kind of fentanyl. There are many different kinds of fentanyl. Yeah,
1: yeah. Was there anything, anybody, anyone that influenced or inspired you, or was your muse when you were writing this book? What how, someone who had done something similarly? in the past that you were looking at for, um, an, as an example. I mean, I think when Michelle started,
2: she was really coming from that anarchist, like political kind of radical, um, background. So I think a lot of the things that inspired her were very much like cut and paste kind of zines that other people had, uh, made that wow. chronicled their kind of experience. And I remember reading, um, Michelle T's Rent Girl and that's where the name Michelle that's where she like takes that from um, and I'm, that was a graphic novel I think that was really poignant and kind of like also really raw
1: the graphic novel has really um come into its own as a literary yeah. um uh uh vehicle I think in in the in the last decade, last five years, even last couple of years. Oh, I did want to ask you, mm-hmm. if I could, uh, what's next? What's coming up next for you in the writing? No, no pressure <laughs> 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 or <More of> anything, <laughs> but but do you have a literary project in the works right now?
2: Um, I do. Um, I'm writing more about harm reduction, I guess, and, and, um, drug use and drug users. Um, I applied to a bunch of grad schools. Hopefully I'll be going to school and I can do that project through there. Fingers crossed. Um, but I, I hope to explore more, more fiction and I want to really, um, challenge myself to think about the ethics of writing about other people in, um, Difficult situations, because I think with, um, this is my real name, it was a very peer kind of relational level, whereas if I'm writing about folks who are maybe experiencing homelessness or experiencing addiction at a more destructive level than I experience it, um, it does bring up more ethical questions. So there's a lot that I'm kind of working on on those levels right now. Mm,
1: That's great. Those are all really excellent questions. And I'm looking forward to, I will follow. I will (laughs) follow your career. This is a great book. We are so delighted to have you on the show. The name is This Is My Real Name, A Stripper's (laughs) Memoir. The author is Sid V. Brunet. And thanks for taking the time to come on Talking Up, Sid.
2: Thank you so much. It's great.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Talking Up. The program was produced by Terry Carter with original music, from the Fortan Electrosonic Laboratory. Be sure to join us again next week for another exciting edition, and if you're interested in keeping up to date until then, visit us at thecharityreport.com.